if you have your Bibles with you this morning, especially if you have your little book of Mark that you might have received, uh, we gave out the last ones that we had at the first service this morning, so we'll be getting more. So if you're new here today, uh, we'd love to give you one of these. We just don't have them, so that sounds like the worst gift in the world. I'm going to do that for my kids on Christmas. I was going to give you this. I just didn't have it, so I learned something today. What do you know? Uh, but the reason we're giving these out to you guys, I want you to bring them, is because on one side it has actual paper like from a tree, not what normal Bible paper is. I don't know what that is, uh, but it's like actual real paper and line areas for to take notes. You can write things in there, a highlight circle. We want you to be able to really go through this with us, make it your Bible as we're spending 16 weeks going through the book of Mark. Because here's what I've discovered is that the Word of God has the power and the ability to completely change your life. And so that's why we're spending time going through the book of Mark. Um, and we're going to be picking up in chapter 2, verse 23. But before we get there, uh, this is week 3. Week 1, we were looking at, uh, it begins by saying, this is a good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what, the, what Mark's trying to portray Jesus as in the very first chapter of the book is that he's the Messiah. He's the one that humanity has been waiting for. He's the one who's coming to restore us in relationship to God. He's coming to restore us in relationship with each other. He's coming to restore all creation. That the Messiah that we have been longing for, the Messiah that we need, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reality of his coming changes everything about our, our lives now, our future. Absolutely everything is changed by the fact that Jesus has come. In chapter 2, what Mark does is begin to describe how Jesus starts out his ministry by saying, believe the good news of the gospel and follow me. He doesn't just say, believe me, believe in me, and then like see you in heaven. What he does is he says, you need to believe in the gospel, first of all, that I'm here, I'm the Messiah, I restore things. And then that belief needs to lead you to take action to now follow after me. Because the only way that you're going to be able to be restored is by beginning to follow after Jesus. When Jesus came to you, you were stuck here, you were living in bondage and slavery to sin, you couldn't fix yourself, you couldn't restore yourself. But Jesus came to you, he broke the chains of sin over you, he set you free, and now he's saying, follow me, follow me into freedom, follow me into restoration, follow me into a life of following after God and your purpose, identity, all of the things that only he can give you. But he doesn't call us just to believe in him, he calls us to have a belief that now leads us to the action of following after him. Now after Jesus starts doing this, what we see now in the end of chapter 2 and into uh, chapter 3 is that there are different responses that people have to the message that Jesus is preaching, to the call to come and to follow after me. Uh, and to illustrate this, I have a little picture. Uh, this is hanging on my fridge. This, Van Gogh has his self-portrait, and this is mine, which, I don't know, Picasso stuff's selling for a lot these days. That might be able to sell someday. Actually, my, four, my, my now six-year-old son drew this for me when he was four, and it's actually a better picture than I could draw of myself, honestly. But when he gave it to me, I looked at it, I, I didn't judge it, I wasn't like, well, you see the disproportionality of the eyes and the arms, like the arms are like this on him, maybe he thinks that's how I look, I'm not sure, but I didn't judge it. All of you guys, if you see it, if you just saw that laying on the street, you would not bend down and pick it up and go put it on your fridge, because it doesn't mean anything to you. But I see that, and it's like someone just gave me the greatest treasure on earth. I'm like, oh, East, and give him the big hug, swing him around. Put, like put it on the fridge, this is going to stay here forever, all that kind of stuff, because it means something to me. And the reason why it means something to me and it doesn't mean something to anybody else 
is because my heart is different towards my son than your heart would be just seeing that. The condition of our heart or the place of our heart always determines the way that we respond to things. So it makes a parent look at that and think it's a priceless masterpiece, and you look at it and think, like, why is that on your fridge? You really should take it down. Someone should help you. It's because of the difference in our hearts. I'm not saying you have a poor heart or anything like that because you don't love my son's painting. I'll let the Holy Spirit speak that to you. I don't have to. No. But it's because of the relationship I have with my son that that means something to me. Jesus came preaching the same message to every single person on the face of this earth. Believe in the gospel and follow after me. And what we're going to see today is that there are four different types of people and there are four different responses that people have to the same message that Jesus is preaching. And it's going to be the condition of the heart that determines the way that people respond. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, we pick up, it says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, this is speaking of Jesus, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are, you, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathur, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of God is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to them, and what had happened was when God first gave the law to the people of uh, Israel, one of the things that he said was that you need to honor the Sabbath day and you need to keep it holy. You guys, if you know the Ten Commandments, that's one of them. You need to, have, you need to honor the Sabbath and you need to keep it holy. And the way that you honor it, he then later reveals, is by making a day of rest for you. It's a day where you're not supposed to work. You're not even supposed to work your animals or any of the servants in your household. It's supposed to be a day of rest for the entire house. And it's a day to focus on God and his blessings, to focus on your family, and to enjoy rest. God even modeled this for us in creation. It says that he created for six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Now, it wasn't because God was worn out and he was tired from creation. God doesn't get tired out. But what he was doing, and like he so often does for us, is he sets the example of the way that we're called to live. God decided to have a day of rest to set the example for us that we need to have one out of seven days as the day where we rest from our labor and from our work. And it's the time where then where we're refreshed, we build our family, we build our relationship with Jesus and enjoy him. Now, the Pharisees are getting all bent out of shape because they says, what you're doing, your, your disciples are walking through the field and they're picking up grains of head, not heads of grains of head, heads of grain, and uh, they're eating them, and that's work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Like, you're an unrepentant sinner, Jesus, and all of your disciples. How could you do this? So what Jesus does is, is he begins to point them back to what the heart of this law was in the first place. Because what the Pharisees had was a heart issue that was going on. When we read through the New Testament, it's really easy for us to see the Pharisees and to think, oh, they're just such horrible people, like they're the idiots of the Bible or whatever. And like even in Christian circles, you know how Christians have their own kind of humor about things? We make Bible jokes, but we also have like Bible insults that we use, like you're such a little Pharisee. Like the rest of the world's like, you're such a Hitler, and we're like, you're such a Pharisee. And those are the only two ways that we have of having civilized discussions with people. 
And so what's happened, though, is that the Pharisees were actually people who started out really, really well with really great intentions. And I think most of us, when we move into a place of error in, in our faith, it's not because we wanted to destroy our faith and to lead other people astray and to oppose God. It's that we had really good intentions that somehow got messed up along the way. And that's true with the Pharisees. The Pharisees started because there was a, um, during the time when the Greeks conquered most of the known world, one of the places they conquered was Israel, and to, they came in and they went into the temple and they plundered it, they looted it, and then they also defiled it. They took a pig because they knew that in the Jewish law that a pig was an unclean animal, and so they took the pig and they sacrificed it to Zeus on the altar of God. Now, if you're a Jew and you're someone that loves God, you find this incredibly offensive. And that was the point. They were trying to break the people. It's completely emotionally, spiritually, physically break down the people so they're going to be easier to rule over. When there was a group of people who decided that they weren't going to bend down to the Greeks and that they were going to stand up and be faithful to God and to what it was that he'd called them to do. There were some priests that went and they, they hold themselves up, they barricaded themselves in the temple, and they had enough oil for one day. And in the law, they were always supposed to keep the oil of the lamp burning, which is symbolic of the presence of God with us. So they said, we don't care what it is that's going to happen to us, we're all probably going to die, but we're going to make sure that we fulfill our duty and we're obedient to God and we won't bend the knee to the Greeks. So they lock themselves in the room, they have enough oil for one day, and they keep it burning, and God performs a miracle and keeps the oil actually burning for eight days, which uh, Jews continue to celebrate that miracle to this day. Out of that group of people who were these heroes of, of the faith became the group of Pharisees. It was a, a way to restore people. Let's go back. Let's, let's not just be influenced by the culture that's around us anymore. Let's not live in bondage to the Greeks and to perverse religion for us. But let's really go back to the scriptures and let's really live a life set apart and holy, honoring God in all that we do. So they go back to the law with the best of intentions and they say, all right, so we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what's work? They came to the place of saying, if, we're, if we want to honor God and make sure that we're, we're not violating his laws, then we need to know what work is. So they started defining what work was. And here's the danger that we always come into. God didn't define for us what work is. I think it's pretty obvious. You know if you've been working on a day or if it's been a restful day for you. But they decided they were going to go through and define absolutely everything, whether it was work or not. And so they came up with all of these laws, not laws that God gave us. God said, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't work on this day, let it be a day of rest for you. That's the law, that's the principle, that's the heart that God had and that he gave to us. But the Pharisees, out of good intentions, started trying to go beyond what it was that God had defined and create more laws. Anytime that you go beyond what God has defined or what God has given you, what's going to happen is you're going to create laws and rules and systems not based on God and on God's heart, but that are going to be based on the culture that you're a part of. The culture that you live in, the fallen, broken culture that you live in, will begin to shape the laws that you make, and you will attribute them to being godly things, even though they can be far from what God actually ever intended them to be. That's why the Pharisees, when they saw them plucking the grains, they had to find that as work. They said, clearly, like, you're, you're doing something bad. Now, do you think the heart of God is for his children to starve to death on the Sabbath because they can't do the work of plucking some grain and eating it? No, and that's why Jesus says, you don't understand. God didn't create people to serve the Sabbath. 
he created the Sabbath as a time for you to be able to be restored and for you to be healed. That's why it's okay for you to do some work to get some food for yourself today. I, the laws of work are so crazy that if you were to go to Israel today and you were staying in a hotel room, the elevators on the Sabbath stop at every single floor. On the Sabbath day, they're programmed to stop at every floor. And the reason for that is because it would be work for you to push the button to go to the floor you want to go to. Do you think that was the heart of God in this? He's talking to the angels like, all right, guys, we got a problem. I've seen in the future, someday they're going to create elevators and they're all going to work on the Sabbath and dishonor me and be unrepentant sinners. Like, we got to figure this out. No, that's something that we came up with on our own. We went beyond what it was that God said, influenced by the broken, fallen culture that we all live in and created something that we then attributed to God, even though it completely missed God's heart in it. And when we do that, we can actually find ourselves in a place where we get mad at God or we oppose God because now the rules that we've created don't match up with the actual heart of God. So this is how it continues. There's this confrontation. The Pharisees get all bent out of shape, so they're trying to find a way to trick Jesus and, and to get him for violating their Sabbath laws. And in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's pretty incredible that the people of God, the people who've dedicated themselves to, to knowing God, to operating as those who make God known, become to the face of God and actually oppose him bringing restoration to someone. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to restore. But these people who were supposed to be committing their life to following God and helping other people understand God's plan and his law and his will for our lives had gotten so far from the heart of God that they actually created a system and a structure that would oppose God and keep people in bondage instead of receiving the restoration that Jesus came to give them. It's easy to look at the Pharisees and say, you know, that primitive people 2,000 years ago doing stuff like that. that. You know, we're modern. We don't do things like that. Oh, we do. We do. And I can go back in time just a little bit. Right now, one of the things that is, uh, like, I'm really grateful for is that the subject of racism is a lot more in everybody's minds because for a while it was like, hey, you know, like we're a post-racial America. We don't have any problems. Move along. Nothing to see, people. And it was like, you know, honestly, it was like, it reminds me of like the Soviet Union, like the little show trials they would do and like the little cities they would build to show the rest of the world how great the USSR was. Like that's what we were doing with the subject of racism and reconciliation. And we were pretending like it had all been fixed and it had all been solved, but instead it was all just covered over so that it was hidden beneath the ground. Well, when things are hidden, they can grow. And when things grow, they produce fruit that begins to spit up in all of the cracks that you see. 
When something comes up through the cracks, the good thing is, is that now we can see it and we can identify it, and now we can kill the weed and pull it up by the root to finally get rid of it. So right now we're at a place of after having tried to cover up racism and the effects of it on our, our culture and, and on the soul of America, now we're at the place of where, like, thank God because of some horrible things that have happened, at least we're looking at it and saying we're not where we thought we were and we have a lot of work to do. Like, thank God we're not where we used to be. We have a long ways to go to get where we're supposed to be, but God's doing something and the church is at the forefront of that. Of like, we're going to move into this. We're going to figure this thing out about how we can be reconciled as brothers and sisters the way that Jesus has called us to be. So how was it that the church got to the point of where there were so many churches that were saying that slavery was a good institution, that the white race was a superior race over all other races? Like, how is it that the church that's now trying to move into reconciliation, how is it that the church could have been in the place of where they were the ones who were promoting this? It's the same reason that the Pharisees found themselves opposing Jesus and opposing him bringing healing and restoration to someone. Here's what scripture very clearly says. Scripture says that God hates slavers. There's not a lot of people in scripture you're going to find where God says he hates someone. He says that he hates slavers. And that means someone who takes someone and forces them into slavery. God hates that. So how is it that if we believe the Bible, that we have God's word and his law in front of us, how is it that churches and Christians could find themselves in a place of where they're supporting slavery when it clearly contradicts what God has told us? And the reason for that is because we started going beyond what Scripture told us. Anytime you want to oppress someone, anytime you want to subjugate someone, anytime you want to take something or abuse someone, what you have to do is to dehumanize them first. If you dehumanize someone, now you're able to do whatever it is that you want to them because they're not equal, they're not fully on the same level as you are, so therefore you have more rights and privileges that you're entitled to. And if you follow after God, then you'd say, this is something that God gave me. Which is the craziest thing because Jesus was a Jew. So um, not quite sure how that all fits into their ideas and theology. But by going beyond scripture, influenced by the culture that they lived in, they were able to reconcile their beliefs with the scripture that they had as saying, well, what we're doing isn't slaving because what that's speaking of is people. And if you're not white, then you're not fully a person. Or especially if you're not of British descent, then you're not fully a person. So therefore, this scripture doesn't apply to you. So you can hold hands and you can sing your hymns and listen to someone preach the gospel and then go home and own slaves and beat them and treat them horribly. That's how you're able to reconcile that in your own mind. Because they moved so far beyond what God had called them to and put themselves in a place where they were influenced not by the culture of the kingdom of God or God's truth, but by the fallen culture that we all live in. Every time we try to move beyond scripture, anytime we try to change scripture to fit in with the culture that we live in, we put ourselves in a place where we develop systems that actually keep people that Jesus died for from receiving what he came to give them. Just as uh, the Pharisees created a system to try to keep this man with a withered hand from being healed by Jesus and opposed Jesus and hated Jesus for what he was doing, uh, people that were supporting slavery in the United States of America and really all around the world, it's not like this is the only place in time that there's ever been slaves, but there's something in the human heart that's broken in this way, is that it made it so that we were able to justify what we were doing. And we created a system of where we oppressed and we abused people that Jesus gave his life on the cross. And when Jesus came to bring freedom to them and to restore them, we stood in the way and said, no, Jesus, not here. 
It's what we continue to do today. It happens all the time. The whole Me Too movement about how women have been dehumanized and put in a position of where they can now be abused. Uh, with abortion, with the killing of the unborn, we know the scripture says that every life has dignity and worth and value. All throughout scripture, this is affirmed. But what we do is we dehumanize people that haven't been born yet. We dehumanize the elderly. We dehumanize those who are born with what we consider to be disabilities. Now, your life isn't equal. It's what Hitler referred to as life unworthy of life. We don't use that terminology anymore, but we continue to do the same thing so that we can continue to serve our own self-interest. We continue to be relevant to a culture that's around us. We allow our culture to define what we think is God's truth and law when we go beyond what it is that God has revealed in Scripture. Anytime we dehumanize someone else, we put ourselves in the place of the Pharisees, where we're setting up systems to keep people from receiving the restoration that the Messiah came to bring. And here's the really sad part about it. It's that even when Jesus came and he explained to them what the Sabbath is about, like you might think, well, people just don't understand. We just have to you know, give them the knowledge. Well, here's what the Sabbath is about. And Jesus actually says, what do you think is right for me to bring healing on the Sabbath day or not? It says they remain silent. They won't even answer Jesus when he brings truth to them. And this is the response that Jesus has. It says that he's angered and he's grieved because of the hardness of their heart. Some of your uh, Bible translations might say callousness of their heart. And what it's speaking to is the same thing, is that our hearts can become hardened and calloused. Uh, the first time that you do something that's wrong or that goes against God's law, what happens is there's some kind of hurt that occurs in us. It's like getting a blister. So I had to practice bass this week so I could play. And those strings are ridiculously huge. And so you're playing, you know, hitting the strings hundreds of times, and what happens is your fingers weren't meant to slap metal strings hundreds of times in a row. So you get blisters on your fingers. It's an injury. It's something where now it's painful and it's sore, and it reminds you, don't do this. This isn't good for you. But then if you keep playing, eventually the blisters pop and you build up calluses. It's hard, thick skin that covers your fingers. It makes us keep doing that thing that your fingers were never meant to do, and now you can do it without pain. Because your fingers lose the ability to feel what you're supposed to feel that leads you to stop doing that. Same thing happens to our hearts. Is that when we do something that violates God's law, it causes a blister inside of our heart. Like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. There's a pain. I remember the first time that I, I saw pornography, you know, as a teenager. And there was something that happens, like I'd crossed this line of I knew I had done something I shouldn't have done, that I had violated God's law, that I'd moved into a territory I was not supposed to be in. And it caused pain for me. Uh, I remember the first time that I yelled at my wife. Like I knew that I had violated something, that I had gone to a place that I wasn't supposed to go to. And for those of you that are married or that you have kids, you know what it's like. There's, there's a temptation, like anger and frustration, like is building up. You know, like here's that line, like I'm not going to cross it. People without kids are looking at me like, how are you talking about? How could you ever do that to sweet children? You'll figure it out. <laughs> like, like anger and frustration rising, but you know, like I can't cross this line. This isn't good. Like don't cross that line. And then the first time I, I yelled at Anna, and it was like, oh. It probably hurt me more than it hurt her because I had done something I was never supposed to do. The woman that I vowed to honor and cherish till death was part, I yelled at her. And I knew I wasn't supposed to do it. It blistered my heart. 
What happens if you keep looking at porn or if you keep yelling at your spouse or, your kid, or you keep doing whatever sin it is that you happen to have an attraction to? Is eventually you don't have a blister anymore, you get a callus. And that callus will make it so that you don't even feel pain in doing it anymore. You, you can look at porn, you can yell at people, you can be greedy, you can be a jerk, you can be judgmental, whatever the sin is that you're struggling with. It gets to the point of where if you don't allow the Holy Spirit through the spiritual blister that he causes in your heart to lead you to repentance, it will cause a callousness over your heart that will become so thick and, and make it so you can't feel. And sometimes you get to the point like you approve of the thing that you're doing. You don't see anything wrong with it anymore. It begins to, to callous your heart so much that you don't even see the wrong in what it is that you're doing. That's what happened to the Pharisees. They had become so calloused in their heart that even when Jesus came and he spoke truth to them, they weren't able to respond. That happens to us. And that's why to the Pharisees, when Jesus said, follow me, they viewed him as a threat. They didn't, re- they didn't follow Jesus because he was a threat to the culture they'd created. He was a threat to their political agendas. Uh, the Pharisees, they would be the conservatives and uh, the Herodians. They would be the um, progressives of the time. And so, like, both of them can get together to conspire against Jesus. Like, the only time you can get the political parties together is if they're going to conspire to try to stop something that God's doing. Uh, that's actually kind of biblical. Uh, so it gets quiet when you say stuff like that in church because I offend everybody. But our, our political parties are not the kingdom of God. You show me a political party and I can point out to you where it has set itself up opposed to the restoration that Jesus is trying to bring. Now, I'm not saying you don't vote or make your own like Christian people's party of Ann Arbor. Like, we, not, that's not what I'm saying. You vote for the person you think is going to be the best, but you also be a prophetic voice. You don't just go along with all of the things that the party that you most support is doing that oppose Jesus. You become a prophetic voice to your party, calling them back to truth and praying that God would break through the hardness of the heart so that people can come and accept what it is and so that people can receive the restoration instead of us joining with those who would set up barriers to keep Jesus from bringing restoration to other people. Every eye closed, every head bowed. I mean, we could end right there. Jesus was a threat, and so they didn't follow him. He goes on in Mark chapter 3. And Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You know, the crowds, they didn't follow Jesus. They did for a little bit. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, it says that the crowds have departed him. All that's left is the disciples. From preaching to thousands to being abandoned by everyone at the cross. Because you see, the crowds weren't really following Jesus. They weren't responding to the call to follow after Jesus into restoration. They were coming to him to fix whatever problem they were facing at the time. And they cared so little about Jesus that it says that Jesus had his disciples get a boat ready for him because he knew that the crowd was going to push in and they were going to crush him. So Jesus had to have an exit plan in place because the people who were flocking to him for a miracle would have trampled him and killed him like a Black Friday special at Walmart to get what they wanted. 
Those aren't disciples of Jesus. Those aren't followers of Jesus. Those are people who are looking for something. And he, like, that happens to us too. And this is why like, I'm so against presenting the gospel of like, hey, you should follow Jesus because it's going to save your marriage. You should follow Jesus because it's going to make you rich. You should follow Jesus because he's going to heal you. You should follow Jesus because it's going to advance your career. You should like, you know why we follow Jesus? Is because he loved us and he gave himself for us and our hearts have been so captivated by him that we're going to follow after him no matter what. The deal is that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins so we could inherit eternal life. So now we go to the cross ourselves with our life and our wills and our desires and everything else so that now we can identify with him in the new life that he has. I'm glad Jesus does miracles. I'm glad Jesus restores marriages. But if he doesn't restore your marriage, that was never part of the deal anyways. That wasn't why you followed after Jesus. You followed after Jesus because he alone was worthy with nothing else added to it. I'm so glad that Jesus heals. I'm walking in miraculous health. I'm so grateful for that. But even if Jesus hadn't decided to heal me, I would have gone to my deathbed praising his name and saying that he alone was worthy. I'm so glad for my wife and my children, but even if following Jesus meant that they left me, I would still follow after him because there's nothing that this world has or that it can offer you that compares to knowing Jesus and walking in the life that he's called us to. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, crucify yourself, and then follow after me. And that's why the crowd stopped following him. They just wanted him to do something. Here's what happens to us. We get disappointed because you come to Jesus with a hope, and it's good to have hope. Believe that Jesus can heal. Believe that Jesus can restore. Believe that Jesus can save. Believe that Jesus can do the miraculous because he absolutely does. And the kingdom has broken through into this earth, and we can experience the miraculous now. But the kingdom is also not yet. We're still going to get sick, we're all still going to die. Wives and husbands and children still leave us. That's what Jesus said. You know what? There's people that following after means you're going to lose your wife and your children. But you're going to receive a hundred times more in the kingdom that is to come than what you've lost on this earth. Following after me means that people, you're going to be in poverty. Following after me means for some of you, you're going to die. Jesus actually writes that in the book of Revelation as the letter that's of encouragement that's going to another church. It's like, hey, some of you are about to die. It's like, Jesus, like that, why, why would you write that to me? Can you fix that? Like, do the genie thing, whatever. Like, I don't want to die. Well, I don't want you to either. But following me is worth it. Because don't be afraid of the person that can kill your body, but can't touch your soul. Some of you, you're going to have trouble in strained marriages. Some of you, you're going to be in jobs you don't like for longer than you want to be. You're not going to get the promotion. You're not going to have the finances that you dreamed of. You're not going to be like the pastor you saw on TV that has the Lambo. <laughs> Believe me, I tried. It doesn't work. No. But are you okay with following Jesus because of who he is? Because he's worthy? Because he offers you eternal life? That's why we follow Jesus. The crowds didn't follow Jesus because they wanted something else than what he came to give them. It goes on in Mark 3, 13 through 21, and he went up to the mountain and called to those 
um, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then it lists them out, and then in verse 20 it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Like, the crowd loves Jesus so much, they're not even letting him eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. To his family, Jesus was out of his mind. You always think, like, my family is going to be my support and my rock and have my best interests at heart. Not always. There's going to be times when, you're, when your parents and when your kids and your siblings think that you're out of your mind for following Jesus and for doing the thing that he's called you to do. Best of intentions, love you to death, but they just don't know the thing that God's called you to. None of you have ever experienced that, I'm sure. Even, think about this. Even Mary, like, no, not Mary. Even sweet Mary. Angel appeared to Virgin Mary, good tidings and good news and all that stuff. And even Mary thought Jesus had lost his mind. The brothers, you know the brothers are going to think that he's crazy. Like, what do you think you are, Jesus, God's gift to man? Yeah, <laughs> actually. <laughs> brothers never believe in you. But you know what? This whole family believed after the resurrection. You might be called to do some things that your family is going to look and think that it's absolutely crazy and it's going to get you killed. But they'll believe after the resurrection. You know why they didn't believe in Jesus and thought he was crazy? Why we think Jesus is crazy sometimes when he calls us to do things? Because we don't recognize who he is. There can grow to be a level of familiarity of where you don't see someone for who they truly are. Jesus was just... Big brother, living in a shadow. Jesus was my sweet little boy. But who he really is is king of kings and lord of lords, eternally existing in the Godhead, the one who spoke and created all things. Jesus is the only one who has the ability to speak to us and ask us to do crazy things. It's not crazy to do the seemingly improbable or impossible things God asks you to do. It's crazy not to do them because he's king. Sometimes the rich young ruler, this is one of my favorite examples of it, comes to Jesus, comes to God in human flesh. What have I got to do? I want to be holy. Use me, Jesus. All right. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow after me. Nah, I'm good. And he walks away sad. Why? Because the cost was too high. The cost was too crazy. He wasn't able to receive. He wasn't able to follow after Jesus. Because he didn't recognize that he was standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who had the right, the power, and the authority to ask anything that he wants and we, his loyal subjects, do it. We won't follow Jesus if we're like the family and we think he's crazy. We need to see him for who he is. We need to see him as king. And then lastly, to his disciples, Jesus was restoration. Now these four groups of people Three of them weren't able to receive the message of believe in the gospel and follow after me. The Pharisees couldn't because Jesus was a threat to them. The crowds couldn't because Jesus was just a means to them. The family couldn't because they thought that he was out of his mind. But the disciples could. Because to them, Jesus wasn't a threat. Jesus wasn't a means to an end. He was life itself. To them, Jesus wasn't crazy. He was king. And they knew that he was the only one who could restore them. 
And this is what God restored in them. In verse 13, it says, He called to him those he desired, and they came to him so that they might be with him. If you have your Bible, that's a verse to know. He desired them. You know God desires you? This king, he desires you. Part of the reason he calls you to follow after him is because he loves you so much that he wants to be with you. That's what he says. The reason he called these disciples, he called the people to follow after him, he just desired them. I'm calling you because I want you to be with me. It's the reason he came. He came to restore us because we had been separated from God. He created us to be daughters. He created us to be sons. He created us to be his own family. But we all went astray. We all rebelled against him. We all rejected him and the life that he called us to. We all deserved his wrath. We all deserved to be kicked out of the family house. But instead, he came and he went to the cross and he died for us so that we could be the prodigal sons and the prodigal daughters, that we remember the goodness of our father's house and we run back to it because we want our father and we want the blessing of living in his house. That's what Jesus came to restore first and foremost for us is that relationship. He desires you. He wants you to be with him. He calls you to follow after him so that you can enjoy the greatest thing that you can know in this life, and that's Jesus. You can know God. He desires you deeply and intimately, not to live a life knowing someday I'm going to get to meet Jesus when I get to heaven if I live a good enough life. No, Jesus lived the good enough life for you, and he went to the cross so that now it's not about the good life that you live. It's about what Jesus has done for you, so now you're able to receive eternal life and the blessing of knowing him. Now it's not about living good enough. Now it's about knowing him. It's about spending our lives pursuing Jesus knowing him, being with him, because he desires us. The first thing he restored was love. And then after that, he restored purpose. He says, I'm calling you to go out and to preach this gospel. I'm calling you to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. I'm calling you to advance my kingdom on the face of this earth. Jesus is restoring us to the purpose that you were created for. So many people live a purposeless life, And they go through it always wondering, what was I made for? I'm trying to find fulfillment or contentment or purpose in something. Jesus is the only one that can restore that to you. There's no career, there's no job, there's no boss, there's no rec league, there's nothing. There's no marriage, there's no children, there's no hobby, there's no sport, there's no accomplishment, there's no education or degree that can restore to you the purpose that you were created for. Only Jesus is able to do that. And the only way you're ever going to be able to have purpose restored to you is if you first come to the place of restoration of love and relationship with him. Too many times I think we're trying to figure out our purpose in life and trying to do the thing God made us to do disconnected from relationship with him. You can't do that. The only way the disciples were able to live out their purpose was because first they were restored to relationship with Jesus. And then he restored authority to them. He said, I'm giving you the power to cast out demons. I'm giving you the power to heal people. reason is he's saying that the domain of darkness that has been running this world for so long, now I'm restoring the authority that you were always created to have so that you can do the thing that I've called you to do. You know, there is no power of darkness that can stand against us, not because we're so awesome, 
but because Jesus has given you authority over the powers of darkness, connected to the purpose for which he created you. He's a good father who gives us everything that we need, who delights in giving good gifts to his kids. He's not the dad who says, hey, I want you to go out there and clear the forest. Here's a hammer. Thanks, dad. He's a God that says, I called you to clear that forest. Here's a can of gas and a match. Go have fun. God's given us authority to trample over the works of the powers of darkness. We don't live as the victims. We live as more than conquerors. We're victorious in all things through Christ Jesus. But again, our power is connected back to the relationship with Jesus. First and foremost, following him is about being with him. And it's out of that place of love and relationship that God restores your purpose and then he restores the power to you and the authority so that you can accomplish the thing that he's called you for. Which of the four are you today? Is Jesus' call to follow me something you can't receive because like the Pharisees, he's been a threat to you, to your culture, to your way of thinking, to the rules that you've made. If you found yourself in the place of where you're actually creating obstacles and barriers that will keep you from receiving restoration and keeping others from receiving restoration from Jesus as well. This morning, has your heart become calloused? So we're not able to come into agreement with the truth of God when he speaks it to us. The Holy Spirit can change that in a moment. Maybe this morning you've been disappointed in Jesus because you can identify with the crowds. You wanted something out of Jesus that you haven't seen yet. If that's you, then eventually like the crowds, you'll end up abandoning Jesus because he will have failed you in your eyes. Jesus took your sin. He gave you life. He gave you him. It's more than we ever could have asked for. It says that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Jesus will never disappoint you. Sometimes you'll put hopes and expectations on him that you shouldn't. This morning, Jesus is calling you to follow after him for who he really is because he's worthy. Maybe this morning, you haven't been able to follow Jesus because he's out of his mind. What you need a revelation of is that Jesus is king. He's a good king. He's a good king. But he's still a king. He has all power, and he has all authority, and he has the right to ask us anything that he wants. But he'll never abuse that power to harm us. He will use that power to lead us into restoration, even though it might seem so painful and so hard for us at the moment. It might seem like it's a crushing of our very soul. But we have to have the faith and the trust in him that he's the good king who will lead us into restoration. Follow after me. Maybe this morning you're the disciple. 
Jesus wants to restore love and relationship. He wants to restore your purpose, and he wants to restore your authority this morning. Would you stand with me? Jesus, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Jesus, would you show us who we are? As you've been saying, believe the gospel and follow me. Jesus, would you show us the condition of our heart and how we've been responding to that call? This afternoon, once again, Jesus is speaking. Believe the gospel. Follow me. Follow me out of all the laws that you've made. Follow me because I'm worthy. Follow me because I'm king. Follow me because I'm calling you to be with me. I desire you. Follow me. This morning, if maybe it's for the first time you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. Or maybe somewhere along the way of following Jesus, as so often happens in this life, we kind of get off track. We start becoming like the Pharisees. We start becoming like the crowds. We start becoming like the family. But Jesus is calling you once again to follow and to be a disciple. If you know that's God speaking to you, and, and this afternoon you're making that decision to move into discipleship, to move into following him, would you just raise your hand as your sign of, of proclamation, a sign of faith of Jesus, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you for those hands. Thank you. Jesus, I pray for every hand that's raised this morning, God, for every heart that's connected to it. And God, I pray that there would be a real and a tangible sense of your presence like they've never known before. Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would overwhelm them with your goodness, God, that they would be overwhelmed with your love and your affection. Jesus, even for those who didn't raise a hand, but they know they need it. Jesus, I pray for a revelation of your love over their hearts, God, that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see how deep and wide and high is in the breadth of your love for us. Jesus, overwhelmed by your goodness and your love. Jesus, I pray for every heart, God, that there would be a restoration of love, that they would know how desired they are by you. It was demonstrated in the cross how great your love and your affection is for us. But Jesus, I pray it'd be more than a story that we've heard, but it would be the reality of a father speaking to his child's heart here and now. Jesus, I pray for restoration of purpose. Not aimlessly wandering or pursuing other things, but the purpose that you called us for, of serving as subjects in your kingdom, proclaiming the gospel, serving after you. Jesus, would that be restored in confidence and faith that comes with that? And Jesus, I pray for restoration of authority in every hand that was raised. 
the power of the Holy Spirit producing fruit and giving us gifts, God, to do the things that you've called us to do. God, I pray for a holy boldness to rise up in Radiant Church, that we would never be those who shrink back in fear, that we would never be those who are filled with worry and anxiety, but God, that we would have the mindset of Christ Jesus, more than conquerors, victorious in all things. God, that your kingdom has come and that it's being done on, your will is being done on this earth as it is in heaven. Demons are trembling at your name. No power that has set itself up against you can stop you because you're the unstoppable God who nothing is impossible for. God, restore that in us, we pray. God, let us be a people who love you and experience your love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm in my prayer partner. is going to be in the front here. Listen, if there's anything that we can pray for you about, we would love to pray for you. We see Jesus move miraculously every single week in response to the prayers of his people. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you need healing. Maybe it's a relationship, whatever it is. Come, let us pray for you and see Jesus do what only he can do in your life. Uh, if not, encourage you. Um, Remember, we have Brother Abraham coming the 14th. Get that on your calendars. Be here. It's going to be awesome. And then at 8.30 on Sunday mornings, we have our intercessory prayer meetings. I encourage you to come out to those. They are fire, and you don't want to miss those. And Jesus is just doing awesome things in response to that. So go home. Enjoy your day. Come forward. Let us pray for you. And we'll see you next week. God bless.